This program is brought to you by the University of California, Davis on iTunes U. For more information, please visit us at itunes.ucdavis.edu. Okay, so first, just a couple of announcements. So, Problem Set 6 is out now on the class webpage. Uh, it's not to be turned in, it's just sample problems. I will post um, solutions the week after next to at least most of the problems. Uh, also, I'll put out the Problem Set 5 solutions on Monday afternoon. And reminder again, no class next Tuesday. And also, I won't have office hours the next two Mondays. And for next week, Spencer will have special office hours on Tuesday from 10 to 12 only. Okay. And also, um, you can get problem set four, which will hopefully be graded by, by next Tuesday. Okay. So we started talking about randomized algorithms yesterday, and I want to continue with that with a couple more examples from the book. So let's move over to here. So let me start with an example in 13.4, which kind of combines the last two main things we've done, which is randomization and approximation. So what I'm going to look at is a randomized approximation algorithm. And the specific problem I'm going to look at is what I'll call max three normal form satisfiability. And this is just a version of the um, SAT problem we've looked at before, where we have an expression, say, x1 or x2 or not x3 anded with x1 bar or x4 or x6 and and so on. And we'll assume that we have in total m clauses, where clause is one of these triples. And the three CNF is just that there's three variables in each clause. And the reason it's the max CNF is that the normal SAT problem is just a decision problem. Okay? Is there an assignment that satisfies all clauses? Okay. So in that version, it's not really amenable to approximation. Okay. But the version that is, where you want as many clauses as possible, satisfied. So the optimum solution, even if you can't satisfy all of them, 
satisfies as many as possible. Okay, so you can think of settings where these represent constraints you'd like satisfied, and if you can't have all of them, you want something that satisfies as much as possible of the things you want. Right? Okay. All right. So what we can imagine then is that we have that C star corresponds to the maximum number possible for our input. And this, of course, is at most m. That's in the best case you can do it. And what we want to do is to find a solution with C clauses where we're going to find our solution using randomization okay. with C satisfied using randomized choices. And now what we're going to guarantee in this case such that the expected value of C is equal to or greater than some constant epsilon times C star. And so before, we wanted things like that for a maximization problem that the value of our approximation algorithm was at least some fraction. And so here for this to make sense, 0 is less than <coughs> epsilon is less than 1. So this is sort of a general setting. But in fact, for this problem, there's a very simple randomized algorithm that does pretty well. Okay. And the algorithm is simply to say for i is, goes from 1 to n, for each of the n variables, okay, randomly set the variable x sub i to either true or false. Okay, so imagine that you go through, and for each one, you flip a coin. And if it's heads, you assign it to true. If it's tails, you assign it to false. Okay. Right. And in that setting, we're going to get some assignment and we'll let C be a random variable that represents the number of clauses that's true. Okay. So after having done this experiment, C corresponds to a random variable. That's the number of true clauses. So to do this analysis, let me do the following. Let me let x sub i be a random variable. Where this is equal to 1 if the ith clause is true. 
n0 if it's not. Okay, so if we run our coin flipping experiment of setting all n variables, it'll be the case for every clause that either it's true or it's not. If it is, then it's, this is going to get set to 1, and if not, it's going to be set to 0. Okay? And therefore, C, the number of clauses that we satisfied, is just going to be equal to the summation of these x sub i's. And so in a given run of the algorithm, this is how many clauses we satisfy. And therefore, the expected value of C, the expected number of clauses we satisfy, is the expected value of this summation of the XIs. Okay, so, so far, this is mostly really just definitions and um, substitution, right? But the nice thing is that the expected value of a sum is the sum of the individual expected values. Okay. So this is equal to the summation, i equals 1 to n, the expected value of xi. Okay. So remember, xi is always either 1 or 0. So because of that, this in turn is equal to the probability that xi is 1 or that the clause is true, okay. which corresponds to OK. Well, so now we're left with what's the probability that a given clause is true? So say x1 or x2 are not x3. Okay. So in some ways, it's actually easier to say, when is this clause false? So what? What has to happen for this to be false? Yeah, false, false, true. And what's the probability that that happens? Okay. So this happens only one half cubed, or one eighth. Okay. And that's how what how what happens if to make it false. So the probability that xi is 1 or the ith clause is true is 7 eighths. Okay. And that's true for any clause. Okay. So therefore, I can evaluate the sum by just saying that this is just n, the number of terms, times I'm sorry, sorry, not n, excuse me, sorry, this was a poor choice, let me uh, rename this, okay. 
sorry. And the summation goes not from n to n, but to m. Okay, this is a summation over the clauses, not the variables. Okay. So therefore, it's m times 7 eighths. So therefore, we have that the expected value of c is exactly m times 7 eighths. And that's equal to or greater than c star times 7 eighths, since m is always equal to or greater than c star. Since we know that the best you could possibly do is to set them all to true. So we have, in a sense, a ridiculously easy approximation algorithm for this problem that gives us a pretty high fraction of the optimal. And I want you to notice that this says something else. It also says that every three-set assign every three-set input has a solution that satisfies at least seven-eighths of the clauses. Okay. Because if the expected value of this experiment is seven-eighths, there must be at least one actual truth assignment that gives you seven-eighths or more. Okay. That every clause is what? Okay. Okay. So here, I actually, that's a good point. I actually, the only independence I used in this is that my assignments of the XIs are independent. Okay. I used the fact that, let's go over to here, that the XIs are independent. Okay. Um, when I did this computation, okay, this used the fact that each choice was independent. But I make no assumption about the individual clauses. Okay. That the rest of this, in particular, this transformation does not assume any independence of the random variables. Okay. It's true for them regardless. In fact, this result is true even if all the clauses are identical. Okay, they're about as dependent as you could want. Okay. So what that says is that if all the clauses are identical, then seven-eighths of the time they're all true, and one-eighth of the time none of them is true. Okay. So there's a high variance in the number true, but the expected number is still seven-eighths of the total. Okay. So, so it, is, it is good to keep those, those features in mind. Right. And it shows that sometimes just using this simple way of um, designating random variables for the events 
and computing the expected value of the random variables and summing them up to get the total can give you a useful result. Anything else on this before we move on? Okay, then let me just mention that 13.5 talks about quicksort, which we mentioned last time, and a randomized algorithm for selection. Okay, so let me just mention that the selection problem is that the input is an unsorted list x1 through xn, and an integer k in the range 1 to n. And what you want is the case smallest xi. And what is shown in 13.5 and what many of you have probably seen before is that you can solve this problem in expected linear time. using a variant of the quicksort approach. And I just want to comment that you can also solve this problem in linear worst-case time. But the algorithm that has linear worst-case time is significantly more complicated, and also it usually runs slower. So in return for having a guarantee that it's linear, then you pay a higher constant in typical performance. So it sort of depends on your setting. That this algorithm, the randomized one, is worst case theta n squared. So it can be quite bad in pathological settings. And I just want to comment that there are a number of problems where by using selection you can take an algorithm that would normally run in n log n time for sorting and reduce its runtime to linear when you actually don't need to sort the algorithms. You can settle for selection instead. OK, so I'm not going to talk about the details in part because I suspect many have seen this before. But I just wanna, wanted to comment on it since it fits in here. Okay. All right. Now, I will talk about in more detail the material in 13.6 which talks about hashing. Okay. So hashing is a very important um, solution algorithm, one that I'm sure all of you has, have seen before. It's widely used for 
at least the most basic form where you want to store keys in a table and be able to add new ones, delete keys, and find a key. These are typically what are known as dictionary operations. Since you have this thing of adding and looking up things. Okay. And in particular, in a certain sense, it has constant expected time performance. Okay, so you can do each of these operations in expected order one time. Um, I will say sort of more or less, and I'll comment about why this, this order one isn't exactly right, but it's reasonable in practice. Okay. And I'll just remind people that sort of the basic thing is that we assume we have a hash table which will typically denote the table size as n, where we think of this as a one-dimensional array indexed from, say, 0 to n minus 1. And given key x, we have a hash function h and h of x produces a value in the range 0 to n minus 1. And that is ideally where the key of value x should be stored. Okay. So for example, if h of x is 10, then in location 10, we will ideally store x. Okay. And the rub, as we'll talk about in a little bit more detail in just a minute, is that typically the possible keys are much larger than n. So therefore, it's possible that more than one key will have hash value, say, 10. And then we have to determine what to do in the case of that collision. Okay. Right. Okay. Now, I want to comment that while there's lots of work on all that, we're going to mostly ignore those issues here and talk about a different one. Okay. Okay. And then, again, should, I'm going through this very quickly since it should be reviewed. But just to, I just want everyone to be sort of crisp of where we are, since we're going to talk about some things related to hashing that you probably haven't seen. Okay. So one of the things is that the typical way in which you get this good performance for these is by somehow assuming things about the data and trying to pick a hash function x, h that sort of spread things out. And that's typically a somewhat ad hoc method. Okay, if you look at data structures or algorithms books, they'll typically list 
a number of desirable hash functions to try and use. Okay. So, but here we want to talk about a real sort of theoretical way that we can say that hashing has good expected performance. Okay. Not sort of depend on choosing a hash function that works well. So we'd like to say that we have a way where no matter what the data is, we can um, have a hashing scheme that has something like expected constant time performance. Okay. All right. So let me also maybe just comment. The book has kind of a nice application of hashing. Um, they talk about the case where you're storing articles. Okay, so you have some online like clipping service and articles are arriving from a number of sources. And what you'd like to do is to quickly determine whether or not something is a duplicate of something you've already seen. So we're going to say that the key for an article is, say, the first hundred characters. So therefore, we'll say that our h of x, where x is a string of up to 100 characters. Okay. So, so the main thing is that there are straightforward ways of converting this to an integer. And in fact, of course, the computer stores this string as a sequence of zeros and ones. So you can more or less just think of that binary encoding as the number. So we can always think of this as a number, whether it's conceptually a string or not. Okay, so that's not really an issue. But the point I wanted to make here to emphasize is how many possible values could x take on? Okay. So presumably, h of x should produce a value in the range, say, 0 to n minus 1, where n is our table size. So this is the range of h, but what about the domain? Sorry? Okay, so I heard 2 to the 800. So we're saying something like 2 to the 8 for um, assuming an 8-bit character encoding. And that can then be raised to the 800. And as you said, something like 2 to the 800. Okay. So a truly enormous number. And what we consider this to be is the size of our universe of possible keys. Okay. And we'll denote this universe of possible keys by u. 
and the cardinality of u is the size or say 2 to the 800. I mean, this is maybe a little pessimistic in that there's probably some characters in here we wouldn't really see, but at least in principle, if you might have various types of garbage in your um, article, then maybe you could get all or almost all of these. Okay. Uh, some of these coatings also only allow you to use seven in a parity bit, but at any rate, those are small details. Okay. So the key thing is that this is presumably vastly larger than n, the table size. Okay. So that's really the point I wanted to emphasize, that at least potentially there's a huge um, blow up between them. Okay. And we'll see in a minute why this is maybe of some importance. All right. So let me talk a little bit about the scheme that we want to create now. So what we want is, okay, so we're going to typically assume for convenience that our table size n is a prime. And it's useful for various operations we want to do um, for this to be the case. And what I want here is a collection of hash functions, which I'll sort of generically denote as script H. Uh, we'll see, I'll actually talk about um, a more detailed way of talking about the set. Okay. Um, such that, okay, so there's, so this is something that contains functions. Okay. And in particular, if H is in script H, um, H maps things in u to 0 to n minus 1. Okay, so these are functions that will take as input something in my set of possible keys and produce an index in the table. Okay, so they're what I want from my hash functions. But in particular, I want them to have three properties. Okay. First property, which is described in 13.22 in the text, okay, for any pair of keys, u and v, in my universe u. Okay, so if I consider two possible values, I could feed this function. And um, I pick a random hash function h in my collection, okay, then the probability that these collide, that h of u is equal to h of v, is at most 
1 over m. So this is saying that no matter which pair of keys, if you choose a random function in your collection, they're not very likely to collide. Okay. And let me also in particular say that this 1 over n corresponds to a way that people often model good hash functions, which is if you think of taking the two keys and randomly placing them in the table. Okay, so if you just pick two random locations, the chance they'd hit the same spot is 1 and n. Okay. So in a certain sense, this is kind of the best you could hope to do. Okay. So that's one thing. Um, the second two properties, the book doesn't say quite as explicitly, but we also would like to have the property that we can describe the function h compactly okay, if it takes some very long ornate way of describing what the functions are then it's not very easy to deal with this okay. and finally we can compute h of x efficiently. Okay. So sort of what this is saying is one says it has good collision avoidance <laughs> properties. Two says we can deal with it in a reasonable way in describing it. Three says when we actually do the computation, it's reasonably fast. Okay. All right. So. So this is a nice goal, and in fact, it's achievable. Okay, and we're going to now describe a relatively simple collection of hash functions that achieve these three properties. Okay. Okay. But before I do that, are people clear about what we want? Let me talk about how to get it. Okay. OK, so the way in which we're going to get that is the following, and in particular, um, oh, oh, and also, I'm sorry, a, class, a, a collection that does this, let me move back to here, if they have all these three, then we say that H is a universal class of hash functions. has these properties. Okay. Right. So before describing it, I'm going to talk about a property of it. In 1323, they, they have this, which is that um, if script H is a universal class um, mapping functions H from a universe U to 0 to n minus 1. Okay. And 
then for any S that's a subset, okay, so you can imagine that S represents our set of keys we want to store in the table, such that the size of S is at most the size of the table. Um, okay. If we pick H at random from our set script H um, and let X be a random variable, okay, as we talked about before that's equal to the number of um, I'm sorry yeah so let H be a random element from you and let you be a specific element um, in you so pick some particular element, then x is a random variable denoting the number of elements S in capital S such that H of S is equal to H of U. So so we let this, and our conclusion is that the expected value of x is equal to or less than 1. So let me parse this a little bit as to what this means. So we're sort of saying that if you consider a collection of up to n elements, and if you ask for any ele given element, either in the set or not, if you ask how many things collide with it, and so another way of thinking about it is suppose that you could imagine that this element U was already in your table and you hashed everything in S now. And you asked how many things in S would you expect to collide with it? Okay. And the answer is at most one. And let me just comment that we can get this by just saying that x is equal to x1 plus x2 plus x of k, where k is the size of s, and x1 equals 1 if the ith element of S, let's say S sub I has H of S sub I equals H of U. Okay, so we just sort of think for each element in S, this is a random variable that, sorry, be X sub I. For each element of S, we say that this random variable is 1 if that collides with it, and zero if else. Okay. 
and therefore, as before, the expected value of x is the expected value, sorry, the summation of the expected values of these x sub i's. And these, by the definition of a universal hash function, are at most 1 over n. And we said that in a universal hash function, for any two elements, the probability they collide is at most 1 over n. Okay. And since, so this then is equal to or less than n times 1 over n, using the fact that k is at most n, or equal to or less than 1. So this follows in a very direct way. And we're just sort of saying we've got n opportunities to collide with this element u. Each of those collisions happens with probability at most 1 and n. So the overall expected number is at most 1. OK. So now what I want to do is to talk about the actual hash functions. Yeah, since obviously this whole scheme wouldn't be useful unless we have those. So the idea is the following, that um, so for you, so let me actually, so let me, for convenience, let me let um, the size of u be denoted by capital N. And let me assume that the table size is a prime P. So you can think of this P as being something that's prime and a little bigger than the ideal table size you'd want. Okay, so if you've got 100, you know, 10,000 elements you're storing, you pick a prime that's a little bigger than 10,000. Okay, and that's our number p. Okay. So our functions h are going to map, say, 0 to n minus 1 into 0 to p minus 1. So it's going to, so there are n numbers in U. So imagine that we've indexed them from 0 to n minus 1. Okay, we've coded them as numbers. Okay, and we can view our hash function as doing this. Okay, in some cases, let me comment, there's a little bit of slop in that you may choose a less clean encoding that makes this a little bigger, but it's, it's easiest to think about this. So, so the input is a number, a value u in this range, and the output is a table location that goes there. Okay, so that's what our do. So what we can think of then is that u corresponds to a binary number. 
Okay, so let's say that the bits are B1, B2, and let me break this up in the following way. And finally, up through B sub M, where M is the number of bits, so M is the log of capital N rounded up. And that's how many bits we need to represent numbers in the range 0 to capital N minus 1. Okay. And what is K? K is the log of P rounded up. And what I'm going to think of is that I can take this bit string and treat it as a vector of numbers. So the first k bits, I'm going to say, correspond to a number x1. The next k bits correspond to x2. And then there'll be a final block of bits, which I'll denote xr. So what I'll say then is that u corresponds to this vector x1, x2, up through xr. And the key thing is because of the way I've done this partitioning, each of these xi's is, of course, equal to or greater than 0, but it's actually equal to or less than in fact, it's strictly less than p, the way I've set this up. Okay. And so actually, let me do this as strict inequality. Okay. And what's r? Well, r is just m over k rounded up, or this is log n over log p. And since I've taken my m-bit number and broken it up into r blocks of k bits. Right. Okay. So a given, so remember that what we want to do is to compute h of u, which is equivalent to computing h of x1 through xr. Okay. So this is just a a simple transformation that we've gotten from taking use binary representation and picking out blocks of bits and treating them as numbers. Okay. All right. Well, and what we're going to say is that a value h in our universal class is going to be represented by a vector of r values, which we'll think of as a1, a2, 
up through A sub R. And what am I going to do with this? Well, I'm going to do, use it in a very simple way. I'm going to say that, and because of, and I'm going to say that this vector is denoted A. So what I'll really say is that this is the element H sub A of my universal class. Okay, so each element of this is named by its vector of R values. Okay. And so then, once I've done this, I have a very simple way that H sub A of a value U is just going to be equal to the summation I equals 1 to R of X sub I multiplied by A sub I, and that whole sum is taken modulo P. So notice that this is a simple thing to compute, okay, that A, this vector of R values, defines my hash function. Okay, so that gives me these constants, and then the input u gives me the r values to multiply in each of these terms. So it's a sort of standard kind of inner product of two vectors. Okay. And the fact that I take mod p at the end means I end up with a value in the desired range. Okay, so as given, I'd start with an input, and I end up with there. Now, I want you to note, though, one thing I haven't told you yet is each of these A sub I's is also in the range 0 to P minus 1. So notice that this vector A is very much like this vector of Xi's. Okay, they're each R values in the range 0 to P minus 1. Okay. So in particular, that means that this vector A is equivalent to this type of bit vector. So we can think of A as being an m-bit number. Or we can think of A as being up to size capital M, roughly speaking. Right. And in fact, we can explicitly say that this element A is an element of U. Okay. So that there's one hash function for each element of our universe U. Okay. That element gives us these values. Okay, so now let me see if people can decipher through all this. Um, from this, you have enough information to s conclude 
why I said this isn't quite an, a constant time operation. So, so let me just comment that you know there's a certain amount of detail here, but really it's just a matter of saying that we're specifying our hash function by our vectors of things up to our prime p. And similarly, we've taken our inputs that we want to hash and broken them up into our blocks of bits. So anyway, so I was saying, remember I said at the beginning that this claim that we can actually do hashing in constant time isn't quite right. Because this computation, even though it's reasonably efficient, it requires R multiplications, where R is log n over log p. So it's saying that if your universe is very large okay, compared to the table size, the number of multiplication you need grows with that. Okay? It grows slowly, and if your universe is large but not huge compared to the table size, then this will be reasonably efficient. Okay? It still be something like constant in the table size. Okay. okay, so so this gives us actually properties two and three that I talked about fairly directly. Okay? I can represent the elements of the ha of the set H in a fairly nice way. Okay. And by the way, um, I also now have a way of naming this universal class. So hash functions of this form, I'll call the class H of P comma capital N. Okay, since this class of hash functions is defined by P the table size and N the universe size. Okay, so N determines the length of this vector and P determines the size of the blocks within the vector. Okay. All right. So now let me talk just briefly about how we get property three. I'm sorry, property one. Okay. So property one is basically saying for any Say x comma y, um, yeah, x y, x not equals y. The probability that h sub a of x equals h a of y is equal to or less than one over n if a is chosen randomly from the possible vectors. Okay. 
Okay. All right. So, so the the proof of this uses the fact that the table size p is prime, and uses a particular number theoretic property. But I want to give you I can give you a little bit of the intuition without going into that. Okay. So x we can represent as x1, x2, up through xr, and y as y1 through yr. Okay. So as before, we can take their bit representation and partition it into blocks of log p bits. Okay, and we get these two things. Now, x is not equal to y, so um, for some, um, position i, xi is not equal to yi. If all the blocks are the same, then they're the same key, and of course they hash to the same thing. Now, of course, there may be multiple blocks where they differ, but there's always at least one. Okay. And for simplicity of notation, let's assume that this place where they differ is the last block. Okay, this just makes the discussion easier. Okay, you can easily recast the argument for any other one where they differ. So therefore, we can think of this as that h sub a of x equals the summation i equals 1 to r minus 1 a sub i x sub i plus um, a sub r x sub r. And that's all taken mod p. And h sub a of y is the summation i equals 1 to r minus 1 ai yi plus ar yr, and that's taken mod p. So what we're saying then is that these two terms are not equal, okay, because xr is not equal to yr, so their products differ. And we get two different sums. Okay, so if this is the only place they differ, these two things are equal. But there could also be differences here. Okay. So if you consider the case where these are equal, 
we're saying, what's the probability that this, when you take it mod p, is the same as this taken mod p? And roughly speaking, what you're saying is that you're sort of getting to some position, because remember, what, what does it mean when you're taking things mod p? You're getting some remainder, and that remainder is between 0 and p minus 1. Okay. So roughly speaking, we're saying that if this AR is picked randomly, okay, remember that A is a random value, that you're sort of equally likely to get any value in the range 0 to p minus 1 when you end up with this. Okay. So that, that's what the, then the fact that it's prime gives you that property. Okay. So what you can imagine is that if these were equal, these would have to be the same mod p. If these differed by, say, 5, then this one would have to be, say, 5 more than this mod p. And again, only 1 over p of each values give you that value that balances the difference. Okay, so that, that's sort of the, the idea. Okay, the book gives the, the number theoretic stuff in a little more detail. So that, so that gives us the, the property that we want, and that we have this, this scheme. And I should comment that there are other universal hashing schemes as well. Right. OK. So, so again, this let us get away from the sort of typical prior ad hoc use of hash functions. That now we can really say things crisply that if we're hashing using universal collection and we're picking randomly, we can talk about the expected performance of our algorithms in a way that you couldn't with just a specific hash function that worked well for some data and badly for other data. And so that's what you're getting out of this. So I want to talk about one other application of this that's not in the book. Okay. So this is something that's known as perfect hashing. All right. And this is discussed in a different book. It's discussed in 11.5 of the Corman Lyserson, Rivest, and Stein algorithms book. And this discussion is somewhat taken from there. No, I think I'm going to try and finish up, so we'll just do a few things. So let me talk about actually two types of things. So the idea of perfect hashing is to hash in the strictest sense with no collisions. So notice that if you have no collisions, then 
um, hashing works really well. Okay, you hash a key if it's um, so if you're trying to look up a key, okay, so if you want to look up a key x, you compute h of x, which is k, and if it's in your table of in location k, then it's found if t of k is not equal to x, then it's not in the table. So with this, you only have to do one lookup in the table. There's no issue of the collision resolution kind of schemes. All right? And it's possible to achieve perfect hashing if you have two conditions. Okay? You have a known set S of keys to store. Okay, so you have the set of keys, and you then get to find a hash function that hashes it with no collisions. Okay. However, even then, it's not easy to find a collision-free hash function if the hash function has to be simple and easy to compute. Okay. But you can do it if also the case that, let's say, the size of S is n, and the table size is n squared. So the idea here is that if you have this setting, okay, so now suppose that the set S is a subset of some universe U where the size of the universe is capital N. And we use a class H of P capital N where P is at least little n squared. Okay, so the size of, a, of the table space we're hashing into is at least the square of it. Okay. Okay. So let's imagine that our set S for specificity is x1, x2, up through x little n. And what I'm now going to do to analyze this is to say that I have the following. Okay. If I pick a random H from the class P squared, I'm sorry, Pn, where P is at least 
n squared. And hash all the keys in S to be expected number of collisions is at most one. Where, what do I mean by the expected number of collisions? This is equal to the number of pairs xi, xj, such that h of xi is equal to h of xj. So notice that this is a kind of strong thing. We're saying that a collision occurs any time two elements map to the same location. So, and actually we're going to get, sorry, strictly less than one, not just equal to less than one. Okay. So to get this, let me let Cij be a random variable that's one if h of xi equals h of xj, and 0 if they're not equal. So then the total collisions is equal to the summation of the cij's where i is not equal to j. Okay, of course, if we have the same element, then it's equal. All right? And what I want, so let's call this total number of collisions c, and therefore the expected value of c is the expected value of this summation. And as usual, we can then put the expectation inside. And now we want to know, okay, what's the expectation of Cij? That is, what's the probability that h of xi equals h of xj? Okay, that's the expected value of this 0, 1 random variable. Okay, so up to here I did this. Well, what can we say about this? So actually, I'll give you a... That we want to say that this is at most something. Well, for a universal hash function, what do we know about a collision if we pick a random function? Okay, we picked a random function from this class. So if it's that class, 
we argue that the probability of a collision, yeah, well, 1 over p, let's say, directly, and we assume that p was at least n squared. So 1 over n squared. Okay, so each of these is 1 over n squared. And how many terms are there in this sum? Yeah, well, let's say n choose 2, the number of distinct pairs out of n, which is n times n minus 1 over 2. So that's the number of terms in this. So this sum is equal to or less than n times n minus 1 over 2 times 1 over n squared. Well, the n squared more than kills n times n minus 1, so this is strictly less than 1 half, in fact. Well, what this tells you then is that if the expected number of collisions for a random one is at most a half, then every time you pick a hash function, the probability that it has zero collisions is at least a half. And it's an easy consequence of this that if you pick a random H, probability that there's no collision is actually more than a half. Okay. So what that tells you then is if you want a collision-free function, just start picking H's from this class, check to see if there's any collisions, if there are, throw away your function and pick a new one. And quite soon, you would expect to find one that gives you no collisions. Okay. So, so we use this universal class to create these collision-free hash functions. And let me just comment that this comes up in settings where you have a small fixed thing that you want to do fast lookups on. So, for example, if you have opcodes, okay, where you have a long bit string and a certain small subset of them are legal, okay, you can build this sort of collision-free hash table to do lookups of those. But I wanted to show that, again, that the methodology of using the, the universal hash functions and then using this form of analysis using 0, 1 random variables gives you a fairly simple way. I mean, we didn't need any fancy probability to get these results. Okay. So let me just mention one other rather stronger result. 
So in fact, if you have a fixed um, set S of size n, you can actually create a scheme where you can do lookups of <coughs> excuse me elements S sub i and S using worst case order one hashes, actually, two per lookup in the worst case. Okay. All right, so we already know how to do this actually using only one hash using collision-free hash functions. Okay. Right. But here, I'm going to also use only order n space. Okay, before, I needed n squared space for the hash table. Okay. And I can find the hash functions I use in expected order n time. Okay, that, that's subject to the universe not being ridiculously large. Okay. Okay. So what this is saying is that if I know the elements in advance, I can set up a scheme a little bit like what I just described by looking at functions until I find ones that work. But now I'm allowed to do two lookups instead of one but I reduce my space from n squared to linear. And in fact, the, the constant here is small. You can have it be something like two or three, depending on how you want to trade setup time. Okay. All right. And maybe let me just briefly mention that the idea is to use a two-level scheme. So you first use a hash function which takes your set S and partitions it into subsets where you have collisions. Okay, so this is a table of size n. Okay. Okay, so what you can imagine is that this is a hash function such that some of the elements in S hash to here, some to here, and so on. And what you then do is to have another hash table for each of these groups. And the key thing is that if, say, n1 elements hash to this location, the size of this table is n1 squared. And remember, we just said that if you have a table that's the square of the size of the set you're storing, it's easy to get no collisions. So say if three elements cache to here, 
we'll use a table of size 9. Well, maybe 11, so it's a prime. But, and if only one element hash is here, then you don't need anything. If two hash to here, you use a table of size 4 or 5. So what you do is first find an initial hash function that spreads things fairly evenly. And then for each of these sets, you find a collision-free secondary hash function. Okay. And you can prove that the expected size of all these tables is order n, at least for a reasonable initial one that you can find pretty quickly. And we just described that it's easy to get ones that work here. Okay. So I want to emphasize that there are, in general, n different hash functions used as the second one. Okay. So there's two hashes to look something up, but overall you're going to have n plus 1 hash functions, one to start with and one to resolve each of these subsets. Okay, so they're getting ready to uh, use this room for the seminar, and I guess I'll see you all uh, after the Thanksgiving holiday. So have a good break, and see you back here. The preceding program was brought to you by UC Davis on iTunes U. Please visit us at itunes.ucdavis.edu.